Great Patient One Chapter 22 Read by Achan Suchito and Nick Scott Our two pilgrims have arrived at the Buddhist holy site of Sawati, travelling there this time by coach, train and lorry, as Achan Suchito, weak with dysentery, wasn't up to walking. This means they can now stop there and recover, both in body and mind. Chapter 22 Action and Stillness Achen Suchito It was time for a rest from doing and from ceaseless waves of contact time for a rest even from being anything Ah, Savati and the Jetavana Jetavana, or more fully Jeta Grove and Artapindika's Park, was the first and the greatest Buddhist monastery. When the Buddha returned to Rajagaha from Saranat, King Bimbisara had welcomed him back and offered him the bamboo grove to live in. But it had no buildings in it to offer the benefits of seclusion, away from heat, cold, burning and creeping things, as our daily recollection on the use of lodgings has it. Even a Buddha could make good use of a door. But it took somebody to spring into action to make that happen, and that was an Artapindika, the so-called feeder of the poor, the rich merchant of Savati, who subsequently became most renowned of the Buddha's male lay supporters. An Artapindika had met the Buddha in Rajagaha when visiting his brother-in-law, had been so excited by the thought that an awakened one was residing in the nearby park that after a sleepless night he'd made his way to see the master in the bamboo grove. Just before dawn was the encounter. The Buddha welcomed the stranger out of the darkness and gave him teachings. Thrilled and in awe, another Pindic had invited the Buddha and the Sangha to come to Savati for the next rains. Tathagata's delight in empty dwelling places, replied the Buddha, consenting with a suggestion of what kind of setup he favoured. When Anatapindika got back to Savadhi, he looked for a suitable place. The best site was a park just outside the city, owned by a Prince Jeta. The prince, however, was not interested in selling it. He dismissively replied that the park was not available unless its soil were covered with a hundred thousand pieces of gold. It's a deal, said the merchant. And to everybody's amazement had cartfuls of gold brought in. Even one hundred thousand pieces didn't quite cover the land, but Prince Jeta was so impressed by Natapindika's eagerness that he decided to give the remaining piece of land. Natapindika then set to, having gates, halls, dwellings, storehouses, bathrooms and more built in the park. And so the ideal monastery, the Chitavana, was set up and given to the Sangha. And the Buddha spent the next rains, his fifth, there. 
In fact, he spent 19 rains retreats there altogether, and six in another monastery, the Pubarama, subsequently built nearby. Savati, or in Sanskrit, Shravashti, as the capital of the Kosala kingdom, must have been a busy city in the Buddha's day. And though he certainly enjoyed solitude, the Buddha must also have appreciated a situation where he could easily receive visitors interested in Dhamma. Here also he could give regular instructions to the monks and nuns who would gather eagerly to take up the three months' reigns residence in his presence. However, the place was far from busy now. Sahit Mahit, as it was now called, was nothing much. It consisted of some modern Buddhist temples and one Jain temple, and a bazaar that had gathered along the adjacent modern road since the ancient site was discovered by Cunningham again, in 1863. But nothing much was just fine with me. I could feel myself brightening up as we entered Jeta Grove and walked through its graciously laid out gardens to the Mahabodhi Temple. This was the temple we were planning to stay at for our retreat. It looked like it would suit our purposes as well as Sister Denissa had suggested. A lonely kind of place. It was one of the oldest of the recent monasteries to have been established and looked as if it had been abandoned, or barely used, for many years. We first detected it by a pagoda poking up through the trees. It must have had some Chinese origins. However, it was currently owned by the Mahabodhi Society and in the custodianship of Venerable Soma Ratana, an elderly Sri Lankan bhikkhu. Venerable Somaratana greeted us slightly nervously with a faint smile and a patchy command of English. Having found the letter that I had sent explaining that we were interested in spending time in meditation and having connected us to Sister Tanissara and the other bhikkhus, whom I imagine must have been those that Sister Rojana accompanied five years previously, he relaxed a little. It wasn't that we weren't welcome. What became clear was that he'd been worrying as to whether the place was good enough for us, and whether he could provide the kind of food that he imagined Westerners needed. Then Nick had a great idea. He decided to use the money that the Thai tour party had given for our welfare to sponsor food for us and Bunty and his couple of fellow summoners for the duration of our retreat. Not only that, he covered the cost of hiring a cook as is often the case in the monasteries that they have no lay support and the monks cook for themselves. And this would still leave enough money to make a sizable donation to the monastery. So although Banti was still a little doubtful about what we would like, that was settled. The accommodation was a large rudimentary room on the first floor of the two-storey building. The room had been divided into three by thin partitions and connected to an ante-room that opened onto a veranda. From there, one could view the acre of land that made up the monastic premises. Over to the east was the seven-storey pagoda, with a shrine hall in front and a smaller building behind. There were a few small brick dwellings, presumably where the other monastics lived. Separate from these, and to the west, in the direction of the Jetavana, was another building, a simple, single-storey hall of more recent construction. This 
was a meditation hall sponsored by disciples of Venerable Beni Seija, a Japanese master I'd never heard of. It was a cool, secluded shrine where we could spend time in silent, undisturbed meditation. And beyond that, to the west, was the Jetavana wall, which had graciously collapsed in several places to allow us access any time of day or night to the Buddha's own monastery. You don't get much better than that. The Jetavana was quite magical. Not just that late afternoon, but every day. What is visible now are mostly remnants of buildings from the Gupta period, but there were also bricks from the Kushan period at the beginning of the Christian era. And the foundations of some of the sites are reputedly Ashokan. But it was much more than a piece of Buddhist history. It wasn't that big, and it wasn't that quiet. There were often a few pilgrims making their way around, and regular battles between the monkeys and the dogs, but it had a certain presence. I visited at dawn, when the colours of the day were just forming, and again during the bright morning and the warm, peopled afternoons, and again with candles and incense when twilight drew back the veil of time. The weather was easy, sunny and warm most days, cool at night and with occasional rain. And the earth was blossoming. But no, it was more than that. Not just for the gardens with birds warbling from every tree. Not just for the ruined temples, monasteries and stupas, but because if ever a place could be peaceful, which in India seemed unlikely, the Jetavana was it, despite it all. It reminded me that he, the Buddha, was at peace in the midst of things. That meant a lot to me. A cool wind was blowing from the Himalayas on the morning of the 17th, our first morning. A thick rice porridge mixed with coconut milk and ginger had been prepared for us. The wind also blew in Venerable Nimolo, the German bhikkhu we had heard of at Sarnat. I greeted him with the same faint smile Bunty had worn. What would he want? Counsel? Companionship? I wasn't up to providing much of either. But no. He was sitting politely waiting for us when we returned from our morning amble round the Jetavana and asked if he might be allowed to pay his respects. He was on an indefinite tudong in India. We invited him to have the meal with us. He ate from his bowl in silence and afterwards offered to wash my bowl for me. I took my outer robe off and put it in a bucket to soak, but when I came back an hour later it was washed and hanging out to dry. He had been trained in Ajahn Chah's monasteries, where serving senior bhikkhus is the norm. And so, that was that, and he moved into the third cubicle in our room. It was a pity about the loose floorboards, but what's a little creaking among friends? Apart from an elderly Indian bhikkhu, who had been ordained only recently, and the two Samaneras, who we rarely saw, the monastery was also sheltering Stefano, an Italian man, and Helene, a young Spanish woman pregnant with Stefano's child. They had an easy warmth. 
and they were on retreat too, doing some kind of Tibetan Tantra practice that seemed to evolve her cooking food a lot of the time, and Stefano rigging bells now and then, and rattling a little hand drum. He asked, was this a problem for us? But it shouldn't be. After all, a puja from time to time was part of the practice. So, on the fourth day, Nick and I began the retreat, which will be for two weeks, beginning with a week of meditation together for most of the day and ending with more solitary practice between morning and evening pujas. A structured day generally gives strength to a continual and unwavering focus on a theme such as mindfulness of breathing, anapanasati. At least it should. But my body wasn't happy with what my mind had been putting it through, so it was not prepared to come up with the energy. Meanwhile, my mind had run low on inspirational fuel. So when the thought arose that I'd better get down to sitting upright with unflagging attention on the sensations arising with the process of breathing for 12 hours a day, the reply came back, No way! Not weeks of struggling to make this beaten old nag of a mind jump through the hoops of Anapanasati. As the mood rushed up and subsided, I saw the Buddha's hand lifted in the protection mudra. Something said, Don't do that. No more campaigns. Take it a moment at a time and don't create suffering. That seemed good enough to be getting on with. Nick Scott Anticipating a retreat, one always thinks of peace and that sense of the wholeness of everything that can arise. But the initial reality is often totally different. Meditation can bring one up against one's worst aspects. It wouldn't work otherwise. For me, it is the manipulator, that aspect which seeks to control situations and get them to turn out the way I want. These days I can sit in meditation without wanting to rush out to stop every single bit of noise, but on retreats I still invariably spend the first few days getting upset with something. Either the chap I'm sitting next to, who thinks Anapanasati is helped by doing full-body heavy breathing, the door that creaks every time someone even looks at it, or the way the teacher insists on taking what seems like most of a meditation session giving instructions that have to ramble over contemplations on our place in the cosmos, various aspects of mind, and what he had for breakfast, in order to introduce a simple meditation technique everyone already knows. After a few days I settle down, the angst goes, and I accept that however it is, is the way things are. That's when the peace and oneness comes along. I should have known that after more than three months of contending with India, and having arrived at Savati, annoyed that we hadn't walked through the wetlands, I'd reap the obvious result. The retreat was more like one of the first meditation courses I ever did, when I couldn't settle and anything would get me upset. I couldn't sleep in the room I shared with Ajahn Suchito and Venerable Nimolo. I'd lie there listening to the sounds of them settling and, and be brought sharply out of my enveloping drowsiness by the slightest of things. 
I was disturbed when doing sitting meditation in the Japanese meditation hall. If Adosuchita decided to do walking meditation, his steps, as he gently walked up and down, creating the slightest of pat, pat, pat on the concrete floor. Then, of course, there was India, the locals who would come to stare at me sitting in meditation in the Jetta Grove, the pilgrimage tour parties who came round guided by a loud babble from a megaphone in Japanese, Thai or Sinhalese, the children who threw stones at the monkeys. And then there were also the weddings. As we were now in the middle of the wedding season, there was one at least every other night in the surrounding villages. On the third night, we sat in darkness until midnight at the Gandakuti, a small ruined shrine on the site of the Buddha's kuti, or hut. With a single flickering candle alight, it would have been exquisitely beautiful, had we not also been assaulted by Indian pop songs blaring from a nearby village. They went on after we retired, so that the move I'd made out onto the veranda to sleep alone didn't work, and I had an even more disturbed night. The racket was still going on the next morning, only stopping in the afternoon to start up again in the evening from a different village, just to the west, instead of the north, and if anything, even nearer. So even after a few days, I was far from the detached and centred state that I was striving to be in. Of course, all that striving was the problem. The final act, and my complete undoing, was the night of the storm. It had looked like rain all day, and there had been gusts of cold wind suddenly lifting the dead leaves in the courtyard. I'd been having a hard time of it, with one thing after another disturbing me. There were the brain fever birds in the courtyard outside. Their call, from which they get their apt name, increases in both pitch and volume to reach a crescendo and had thoroughly managed to destroy my attention. Then, when I moved into the grove to get away from them, there were the children throwing stones at the monkeys again. I put up with that only for so long before I went over to try to stop them. They simply shouted at me and ran off, only to sneak back, once I'd settled again, to lob stones at me. Then I decided to spend the night on the veranda of the pagoda. There was no wedding that night, so I thought that would be a quiet place to sit and then to sleep. Well, that's what I reckoned. The storm started at midnight. The sky was split asunder by lightning and enormous rolls of thunder. The heavy rain hammered down, blown in every direction by great gusts of wind. It poured onto the veranda, leaving nowhere dry for me. The pagoda, the meditation hall and the temple building were all locked by then and I felt too sheepish to bang on the door to wake everyone up to get back inside. So I huddled against the wall, shifting around the pagoda each time the wind and slanting rain changed direction. By the morning I was tired, miserable and damp and I gave up striving to achieve anything. Instead of meditating, I spent that morning wandering around the Jeta Grove, enjoying the freshness after the rain. The grove was really beautiful, 
and peaceful. The low red ruins were set amidst a large garden of flowering trees and shrubs. I realised for the first time that the Indian spring had sneaked up on us. New leaves were opening on all the trees, whilst the old ones were starting to fall, and many of the trees and shrubs were coming into flower. Butterflies were fluttering everywhere, and the night's rain, followed by the sun rising in a clear blue sky, had set the bird life singing like crazy. I spent the rest of that day just sitting there, taking it all in. There was only one man, a gardener cutting the grass in the whole place. Compared with the rest of the Buddha's middle land we had seen, it was a true sanctuary. Maybe there were occasional pilgrim groups, but they came and went in no time. And there were no other tourists here, no Indian sightseers, and no beggars pestering me. The problem, as ever, had been in my mind. From then on, I stopped trying so hard to meditate, and spent more of my time just sitting under trees, or strolling along the walkways, slowly getting to know the rich variety of wildlife around me. I saw some fifty species of bird, from tiny purple sunbirds, the size of large insects, their wings flashing a metallic blue, purple and black, like Amazonian butterflies, through tree pies with colourful long tails, and ponderous grey hornbills launching themselves from tree to tree again, to the large vultures, crested honeybuds and some stalks circling in the sky above, or sitting atop the highest trees. For much of the pilgrimage, I'd been wanting to include special places so I could see the bird life. I'd found much more by simply stopping and letting it all happen around me. That day I also woke up to just how run down Ajahn Suchito really was. He was in such a bad way that he'd given up tea, the one thing he was really fond of. When I asked, he reluctantly admitted that his stomach could no longer take it, nor the jaggery that I bought for the evenings. I suspected it was protein deficiency, caused by the intermittent dysentery he'd been suffering. I spoke to Bunty about it, and he told me where in the locality I could buy kalwa, a product of milk. I also mentioned to Stefano and Helena that if they were ever cooking eggs, it would be good if they could spare one. During the rest of our stay, Ajahn Suchita received a regular offering of eggs, boiled, fried, and once as part of a large Spanish omelette. And Bhante gave Ajahn Suchita one of his only two jars of marmite that he'd brought from Sri Lanka. Kolwa was a discovery we'd made in Varanasi. The bhikkhu Vinaya mentions something derived from milk that is allowed in the afternoon. In the West, some of the monastic Sangha interpret this as cheese, but in India, there is no cheese. I suspected, however, India being the way it is, anything there once, even 2,500 years ago, would still be there somewhere. I asked Sergeant Suchito about the Vinaya references and learned that the product was made by separating out part of the milk. Then, wandering through Varanasi's narrow streets, we'd found one alley where everyone was working with milk. They had white pans of rich buffalo milk simmering over coals, and they were using a large, flat, perforated ladle 
to skim off the top. This was drained in cloth, and the resulting product, a lumpy pile of dirty-looking off-white solids, we were told was called kalwa, and was used as the basis for Indian milk sweets. Arjun Sachitu said that he felt this would be allowable in the afternoon, and yes, as sugar was allowable, even barfi, the milk sweets themselves, would be allowable too. Only the plain barfi, of course, and not the versions with pistachios, cashews or cherries that I'd admired in the shops. But still, for me, this was some fine. Ajahn Suchito explained at the time that he was trying to follow the Vinaya's principles, not as a set of restrictive rules, but a way of enabling the monastic's anger to lead a life suitable for spiritual endeavour, such as one including our pilgrimage. The medicines were there to help this, and he felt Kalwa must be at least as near to the original as cheese was, if not the original. There is little description of the medicines in the Vinaya, just a long list of names, with the occasional reference elsewhere in another context for a few of them. Most would probably have been herbal remedies collected from the forest and are completely lost now. But he felt that the Buddha had also meant his followers to have some things to help them in the afternoon, not just as medicines for illness, but also to undertake the long journeys they did on foot. Coming from an ascetic like him, I wasn't going to argue with that. In the market near Savati, I managed to buy a kilo of kalwa, a big cream-coloured block of it with the texture of cheesecake, which they wrapped in banana leaves and placed in a plastic bag. When I got back, I gave some to Venerable Nimolo, much to his surprise, assuring him that Ajahn Suchito had pronounced it allowable, and so something he could both keep overnight and consume in the afternoons. I kept some for myself, but most went to Ajahn Suchito. In Varanasi, I'd been disappointed that we'd found Kalwa so late in our journey. Now, I was just pleased that having finally realised how run down he was, I could do this for him. It's amazing how caught up one can become in one's own world, even, or perhaps I should say especially, when trying to meditate. Achen Suchito I can't do this, but this is what you're here for. But I can't do this. This is the whole point of being a monk, but I can't do this. Try harder, this is the path to awakening, but I can't do this. Try again, just focus the mind, but I don't want to do this. Meditation, the art of war. Who can ever win? As the days on retreat rolled, sagged, surged and faded, with them went the need to be in charge and even the need to stop the conflict. And as all that slowly collapsed, behind it all was the refuge. No more judgments, no activity other than to relate to experience, 
So what else has this pilgrimage been about? Rather than gather or obsess with experiences, deny or fight them, to learn to respond to what's happening. But I needed to sit still to take that lesson in deeply, to collect attention and let the response happen. It was a kind of welcoming. Then the focal points selected themselves, the foot or a toe, or even a joint of a toe, or some other sensation in the body. And when attention flashed off to a sound or a memory, I could just encourage it to stay there for a second, notice and welcome that moment of being peaceful with an experience, and then let the attention relax back to the body. And out of that came the turnaround, both humbling and miraculous. Walking, sitting, knowing the blessing of consciousness, says the little red diary in its entry, February 21st. <laughs> Thankfully it didn't have a lot to say for the next two weeks. Revelations always seem so foolish out of context. Some days the music from the local villages sent us into the Jetavana itself to find silence in one of the more remote, ruined temple buildings, and gradually the retreat opened up from the cool and fly-free Venerable Bene Seja Meditation Hall with its delicate Japanese incense, to the ancient monastic complex, its Kushan and Gupta brickwork soaked in devotion and attended by small groups of pilgrims. There was action and impingement there too. Troops of monkeys pranced in the trees, dodging the missiles hurled at them by a worker from the fields to the east of the grove. The monkeys would make their way over there to raid his crops, and the farm worker would spend most of the afternoon driving them back west across the grove, hurling lumps of gupta or kushan brick at the trees to do so. On the ground, a couple of farm dogs jumped up and down in a frustrated frenzy, emitting the high-pitched yelp that dogs seemed reserved for monkeys. In response, simian teeth were bared and monkey obscenities hurled back from the quaking trees. Though it was not a retreat that came to tranquillity, it was more like massaging things with Buddha balm. Massage it all, the thwacks of brick against tree, the yelps, the muzak, the flies buzzing up my nose and in my ears, the cool, quiet meditation hall which let my mind wander, the dreariness, the soft, mystic dawns, the rattling of Stefano's drum, the times of clarity and the sudden ripping rainstorms. So much stuff. But I could learn not to ask for nothing, then the projections, the expectations, and the prejudices stopped. It became possible to respond to the inner world with compassion, and thereby arrive at a stillness that was yet responsive. As the retreat settled into lucidity, I would allow times in the day for that responsiveness to roam freely. I wrote to Amrawati asking that some of the money that we had sent through the uncashable cheque could be used to send my mother some flowers on her birthday. I wrote to one of the young novices who had left the monastery in disillusionment 
and decided to make him a mala from the beads that Sister Tanissa had given me. Then there was a prisoner, who I knew would be delighted to receive a letter from India. Sharing blessings came to be a very workable practice. We even used it as a theme for the commemoration of Marga Puja on the site of the Buddha's own kuti on the full moon of February. And that site offered Venerable Nimolo and myself a chance to talk about bhikkhu life. It was good to have someone who could act as a reference, seeing the whole pilgrimage as an event in the context of a lifetime of training opened the focus and brought attention back to a more spacious mode. Mind states were no great problem. It's just a matter of seeing them through. After a rough start, by midnight, the body even kicked in with some energy. Dhamma practice could bring such blessings. Nick Scott As the mind becomes still, the beauty in everything becomes more manifest. The patterns made by the sunlight falling through leaves in the Jetta Grove, as I did my walking meditation. A dark red dragonfly sunning itself beside where I was sitting. Stillness also gives nature confidence. Eventually I got to see everything in the grove, even the small birds that hide inside the bushes and make the sweetest of calls. It was at Savaty that I finally saw a green barber, the bird we'd been mistaking for a water pump. I could hear their calls, but even standing under the tree, I could never see the bird. Then finally, one day, I spotted one. Tucked into the armpit of a big branch, its back exactly the dull green of the foliage, and its head and front coloured a grey-brown to match the bark. I suppose it has to be so well disguised, if it's going to spend all day making a racket like that. I also came to really appreciate the elegantly planted gardens. The grove was laid out with tree-lined walks. Flowering shrubs set around each important set of archaeological remains and a wide grove of large trees around the perimeter. Part of this outer grove had been disrupted in recent years by further archaeological digging undertaken by the Japanese. This now looked like an old bombsite, a gap in the planting with only the old foundations left in it. There had been some recent tree planting around this in an attempt to include these new sites in the grove, but it had been done with little sympathy and served only to highlight how good the original planting was. Once the agitation had settled, I also became aware of the ground of the mind, where more subterranean beings can lurk, the drives and impulse we were born with, and the deep conditioning caused by things that really hurt a long time ago. I found that I can get to see it all if I wait and watch. Everything will come swimming out of the murk if I'm patient. When you have experienced that, you don't really believe in something 
unconscious or the subconscious anymore. The practice of meditation brings light to the mind. It makes it a more pleasant place to be and the things swimming around are easier to see. On this retreat, they were all from the last year before I left England. The selfish acts done while caught up in a recent success of my work. The people I'd hurt, and in particular, the unresolved state I'd left my love life in. I'd been sending that back to the depths every time it surfaced, for the whole pilgrimage. It all stemmed from that success. Through my warden job I'd worked with the coal industry to create a mature wetland nature reserve in a year on the cleared site of a gasworks for a national exhibition. The Gateshead Garden Festival. We'd received all the prizes, no end of praise and lots of media attention. But the tired and distracted state I was in as a result made me both needy and heedless. After years of a steady relationship with a woman who lived at a distance, I'd also become involved with someone locally. It had started so casually, with both of us deliberately not looking at or referring to the consequences. But as they do, the relationship had grown, and to be loved by someone with her passion, who will do anything for you, was very attractive during that time. She wanted me to surrender and for us to walk the spiritual path together. But somehow, I could never quite believe it. Instead, I neither committed myself nor ended the relationship. Sometimes I was drawing away, sometimes giving in, and I was only making it worse for us all. My old partner had wanted nothing to do with me when she found out telling me to sort myself out, then let her know, either way. Now, from the perspective of the Jetta Grove, the spaciousness of that response felt so right. In the world, passion may be prized, but it is dispassion that is one of the qualities of enlightenment. I resolved that at the end of the retreat I would write the letter that I had been unable to write for so long. While I was at it, I'd also write and apologise to my assistant on the nature reserves, who'd been given such a hard time by my confused state over the previous year, as I've tried to do two jobs. Perhaps he felt no resentment, but an apology would do no harm, and it would help assuage that other, smaller creature of regret that occasionally swam past. Then there was Harnham. There, in the Northumberland countryside, I'd helped found a small branch monastery in 1980. Ajahn Sichito had been the first senior monk, if only of five years' seniority then, and it was there where I first got to know him properly. I was now a trustee, and at the time of the pilgrimage there was concern for Harnham floating by in my mind. The old farmer who'd rented us the cottage and later sold us the adjacent barns we developed as a meditation hall, was wanting the sold land back. Land we'd built on. I'd become very fond of him, and I even dedicated the pilgrimage to him when we set out, along with my parents. 
On the retreat, I began to see that there was something inevitable about what had happened. The farmer had been delighted by us and the monks for over ten years after his sister, who he had lived with, had died, he'd eaten his lunch at the monastery and had charmed every visitor. But with encroaching senility, another part of him had surfaced, suspicious and miserly, a creature in his psyche he could no longer control. Old age, that too can lay bare the contents of our minds, confronting us with our past actions, both good and bad. By then, though, it's too late to do anything about it. Achen Suchito Venerable Somaratana dutifully took us to see the site of Savati one afternoon. There were excavations going on which were exposing an old house, fancifully titled an Artapindika's house. There were only a few remains of the capital of Kosala, and no trace of its king Pasenidi or his palace. Even the river, which had been a major artery for trade, had left. It was now a couple of kilometres to the north. He also took us to the site of the Pubarama, the eastern park, with the dwelling given to the Sangha by Visaka, the Buddha's greatest female lay disciple. There are no signs of the Buddha having spent six reigns here. Unlike the Jetavana, the site had not been excavated, maybe because it was occupied by a small village. As we wandered round, it was only when Bunty pointed out some features that traces became apparent you could tell that the Shiva Lingam, for example, had once been an Ashokan column. Then again, some of the villagers' dwellings had sections of ancient brickwork in their walls, and the wellheads were of very old brick. And suddenly, from a pathway, the characteristically carved face of Gupta bricks peered up through the mud from which they had come long ago. But the Visaka consciousness is surely still around, that great heart recycled into millions of devoted women who still support the Sangha unstintingly. To them, as to her, it is a great privilege. Visaka it was who asked the Buddha to allow her, for as long as she lived, to provide cloths for bhikkhus and bhikkhunis to wear when they were bathing, to provide food for visiting summoners, food for those sitting out on a journey, food for the sick and their nurses and to provide medicine and a constant supply of gruel. The Buddha was circumspect. What advantage did she see in all these gifts in terms of her own Dhamma practice? Her reply was memorable. When I remember it, I shall be glad. When I am glad, I shall be happy. When my mind is happy, my body will be tranquil. When my body is tranquil, I shall feel pleasure. When I feel pleasure, my mind will become concentrated. That will maintain the spiritual faculties in being in me, and also the spiritual powers, and also the enlightenment factors. 
The awakened one was satisfied that she was in touch with the aims of his teaching. He gave his consent. Venerable Somaratana took us to a traditional meal offering called dana at the nearby Sri Lankan temple, the new Jitavana. He'd been the abbot there for the last four years of his 21 years in India, but had recently retired in order to develop his meditation practice. The occasion today was of his successor's birthday, and Venerable Somaratana was the guest of honour. Life in the new Jitavana was centred around parties of Sri Lankan pilgrims making offerings of food to the Sangha, and Venerable Soma Ratana slotted back into the presiding role with the ease of one who has become accustomed to the benevolent mayhem of tour parties trying to organise themselves. Especially after the simplicity of the retreat, the scene was bedlam. A hundred or more pilgrims who had come a long way by coach were scrambling around, some looking at the temple, some unloading belongings, everyone excited to be at Savati at last. They are of all ages. Some were elderly and had to be helped around. Others were children who romped freely, generally getting in the way of the cooks, who were struggling with huge vats of rice and curries. Others were holding forth, absorbed in conversation. The Sangha, particularly the abbot and venerable Somaratana, were a blurred focal point in all of this, and tried to contain some of its energy with appropriate chants and scraps of ritual. Bunty did his bit, but the scene was much too chaotic for any teaching. After the meal, he glanced at us knowingly and sidled off. We tagged along. As we were leaving, we had a few moments to survey the huge multifaceted mural in the temple. Here were the images that confirmed the faith. Apart from the four typical scenes from the Buddha's life, his youth, his enlightenment, his first sermon and his parinibbana, it was made up of 27 separate portrayals of stories and incidents from the time of the Buddha right up to the present. Those that weren't commemorations of great moments in Buddhist or Sinhalese history illustrated moral themes. An Pindika was here purchasing the Jetavana. The Pubarama was being constructed on the shrine room wall. There, was the story of the blind monk who accidentally killed insects while doing walking meditation. No fault, said the Buddha. There was no intention. Here, the Buddha Anandanda nursed the sick bhikkhu whom his fellow bhikkhus didn't want to bother with. Here was the story of the bhikkhuni Upalavana who was raped, with the rapists subsequently being consumed by fire. Near her, the schismatic Devadatta was being swallowed by the earth. I couldn't place all of them, and the situation was too busy for a leisurely contemplation, but Dharmapala was there, and Ambedkar, with his throng of converts bringing Buddhism triumphantly back to India. I shrugged at the simple conviction. It seemed to me that the only way that Buddhism was related to India here was by providing the locals with the opportunity to sell trinkets by the gates of the temples and the park, or to act as guides and watchmen. Few people seemed to be bringing Buddhism back by doing what the Buddha and his disciples did, meditating, going for alms, teaching people the way out of suffering. Even the temples weren't doing that. Not that the tour bus pilgrims could stop long enough to meditate in any way. 
For didn't the Buddha say that good deeds were of less benefit to the mind than a few moments of sustained meditation? What was so good about Buddhist activity? And then I noticed how unpleasant my mind was, holding on to stillness to the point of getting righteous about it. There's nothing like judging others to help veil one's own defilements. A thought kept tugging at my veil. Who has the right to judge? Nick Scott In the ruins of Old Savati, Bunty showed us two mounds known as Pakikuti and Kachkikuti, which he told us archaeologists believe were once Buddhist stupas, and that local legend has it that one was for Angulimala. He was a notorious murderer who, according to the scriptures, had taken a vow at the instigation of his guru to kill a thousand people. He was a gruesome sight, wearing a necklace made of his victim's forefingers. He needed to take only one more life to complete his vow when he met the Buddha walking alone and unarmed through the forest, but he was unable to kill him. Instead, so impressed with the Buddha's peacefulness and lack of fear, he became a disciple, ordained as a bhikkhu, and eventually even won enlightenment. Not that he escaped the results of his previous actions. It was at Savati, near to where he had committed the murders, that he was recognised many years later, and stoned to death by a mob. But the suitors say he died with equanimity. It was good to find his stupa, and I returned on a later day with Bhante and Ajahn Suchito to offer incense and do some chanting. The name Angulimala brought up memories for me. It's the name of the Buddhist prison chaplaincy service I'd been part of. I'd learnt a lot from working with prisoners. Some of them even gave me good advice. Others, not quite so helpfully, offered to resolve the difficulties I later have with my boss by arranging to have him sorted. The problems they were dealing with were so often things I knew well. But with prisoners, the suffering is cruder, stripped of the refinements we add to it in ordinary life. One visit, I was filling in for another chaplain at a high-security prison and meeting his three Buddhist inmates. We sat and chatted with none of them seeming to have anything pressing to say until the prison officer put his head round the door to indicate their time was over. Then they each opened up with what was really on their mind. The first was about to be let out after a long sentence and was afraid of a changed world. The second had problems with his wife who was seeing someone else. So then I asked the third, a young lad covered in tattoos, if there was anything on his mind. Yeah, it's the birds. The birds? Yeah, the birds. When I'm meditating, they're at the window, giving it, ain't they? I try to ignore them, but sometimes I just can't. And I jump up and I shout, Shut up, will you? I may not get upset about pigeons cooing, but in India, I knew just how it felt. 
prisoners also have a much clearer view of karma. I spent a couple of years seeing two young murderers every week. They'd both committed their crimes in their teens and were now nearly ten years into their life sentences. They spoke openly about their crimes and the effect it had on them. They told me that they had to relive the crime every night. One, who had been the accomplice to a shooting, said that every time a door banged suddenly, the scene and an overpowering sense of remorse flashed into his mind. They were the lucky ones. At least they could face that endlessly replaying loop in their heads. Others, who had committed more premeditated crimes, couldn't face it, and had retreated into their own strange worlds. Lifers in British prisons are usually let out eventually. It's at the system's discretion, and they have to show remorse and contrition to earn it. So they learn to give the standard answers on this to everyone they meet. As a visiting chaplain, I wasn't part of that, and with me they would share their real feelings and insights. One of those young murderers helped me with another prisoner I was meeting, who was really suffering remorse. He told him how remorse was right, but it was only a stage. After eight years of it himself, blaming himself, regretting what he'd done, feeling rotten about his victim, just an unthinking hard kid like himself, he had realised he needed to forgive himself and to see that he was not all bad. It struck me as wise, although he could never have told that to the system. Having learnt so much from my visits to prisoners, it was good to pay respects on their behalf at Angulimala Shrine. I brought each of them I could remember to mind and shared with them the blessings of our pilgrimage. They deserved it. Prison is an atrocious place to try to practice stillness, peace and equanimity. But some of the occupants are determined to finally start dealing with their conditioning. But prison does have one thing going for it. It gives time to reflect. In ordinary life we can stay busy till we die. Achen Suchito Nick, Venerable Nimolo and myself all spent time cleaning up the monastery. In the last few days, we also joined Bhante at the Jetavana, sweeping around the Ananda Baldi tree, a tree supposedly planted by Ananda for people to hang offerings to the Buddha upon. It was a pleasantly calm, unassuming kind of activity, no big personal thing. Other activities seem more personal and somehow wrong. Writing letters to people, a distraction writing their diary, pretentious, <laughs> but wasn't the self-judgment the stronger, more unskillful action than the activities themselves? Why take a stand against action? After all, bhikkhu life had involved me in plenty of it. When our community moved from Oakenholt to Chithurst, an enormous amount of reconstruction and building work had to be done with very little capital. 
So it was basically bhikkhu labour for five years. Not that that was a Western aberration. In some of Ajahn Chah's monasteries in Thailand, bhikkhus would be involved with construction work for years. And for some, the results are good. It stimulates a sense of selflessness and of group harmony. And as with other duties, including meditation, some people develop patience, wisdom and balance, whilst others get obsessive. And most of us learn by wobbling in between. Selfless, dispassionate action doesn't arise before experiencing a good amount of self and passion coming and going in one's mind and that of others. It was the procedures governing the action that kept it all within the framework of contemplation, from the training in ethics and etiquette, to the ways of adjudication, and even building regulations. All this was vinaya, samana dharma, laid down by the Buddha himself. He had to. And he had to keep revising it throughout his lifetime, because within a few years, the position of his summoner disciples changed from that of outcasts wandering alone or in small groups to an increasingly settled community with dwellings and established lay support. Standards and procedures had to be adjusted continually to meet the changes. Once dwellings had been allowed and monasteries set up, then lodging officers had to be appointed and bhikkhus to look after the stores. Because the Buddha saw a poor tailor making a hopeless mess of building a dwelling for the Sangha, bhikkhus to oversee building works. During his lifetime, some bhikkhus even became specialists in building. As a far-raging code, then, the Vinaya is the record of the Buddha's response to the activities that we simplistically divide into spiritual and mundane. It handles all action from a place of stillness like meditation. Of course, action isn't purely an external thing. There's plenty going on in the mind. And the more you recognise that your ideas about yourself and your notions of ultimate truth and the path will occur in a mind that is riddled with fantasy and trickier than a wagon load of monkeys, the more you appreciate daily life activity as a touchstone particularly if it involves other people with their ways of doing things and your reactions to that. I began to compare my sweeping with that of Venerable Nimolo. Was I doing my fair share of the work? And then let go of the anxiety. <laughs> then there was Stefano. What weird practice was he up to? We'd meet briefly, occasionally, united in the Dharma of washing up, gradually small conversations formed. After our formal retreat, we got together. He and Elaine asked for a blessing for the baby-to-be, so I did some chanting and things opened up. Tantra, he explained, was mostly about visualisation, implanting Buddha and benevolent images on one's own form and consciousness and giving a lot of blessings. He'd been cultivating tantric practices for 15 years and after a few initial retreats had taken up the life of a Tibetan monk for the last ten years, mostly in Nepal. All of my life, he said, I wanted just two things. One, if I could learn to be a little more compassionate. The other, if I could just once see ultimate truth. 
that would be enough for one lifetime. For a Westerner, that's humility. Washing up is such good dharma. We enjoyed Stefano, his naturalness and his trust in his practice. The context of another contemplative is a blessing, a way of recognizing one's own biases and the common ground. Talking to him energized me again for the half-moon vigil to take full advantage of the opportunity that our stay here presented. I sat out with a candle at the Gundakuti, looking for the way out of suffering, half knowing that looking for wasn't what it was about. The liberated one does not seek anything that is seen, heard, or thought. He does not seek purity through anything else, for he has neither passion nor dispassion. Action and Stillness I've been caught between those apparent opponents for many a year. If I'm doing something, particularly if it interests me, there's the guilty shadow muttering, should be meditating, you're distracting yourself, getting caught up. And when I'm in meditation, the occasional twinge, should be working, you're not facing up to responsibilities, selfish. And as our time at Savati drew to a close, I don't want to go on, there's nowhere to go. Better meditate. I have to go on, not finished yet. And even now in writing this, the opposing forces glower at each other. I don't want to keep writing this, it's a waste of time. You have to continue. You can't stop now. Here I am with this. Fulfill all your duties. Action is better than inaction. Act selflessly, without any thought of personal profit. Thus spoke Krishna to Arjuna in the conflict of the Bhagavad Gita. Here is good and there is evil. He should wage war for righteousness' sake. But I can't do that. Here I am, a pilgrim. I can't take sides between action and stillness, can't wipe one out with the other. There's no duty but to stop suffering, and that means finding out where it starts. And if I'm fully aware of that point of contact, before self arises, action and stillness cease to be opposites. Watch. And a moment at a time, there's a blessing.